0: You guys can be seated, but I think you figured that out. You can go ahead and start the video. Turn the sound up. I can hear it. It's there this time. Video looks a little better with sound and better picture. It, it's incredible, isn't it? Um, you can turn the lights on now if you want. I really like making you guys dance, so that's my goal here. <laughs> Thanks. Um, obviously, I'm continuing the series that I started last week and 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 several weeks ago when I when I first preached that I introduced um, this covenant series uh, of talking about really just I mean, if you're the name of this church, obviously, is God's New Covenant Fellowship. I want to kind of go over what that means, what the covenant is. And so the way I've been going about it and the way I'm going to continue to go about it is go throughout the Bible and look at every well, every covenant example that I find applicable anyway. There's a lot in there, um, but we're only covering some of the big ones. We started off with Adam and Eve. Then, then last week we really um, went over the beginning concept of when, when Abram, who is a massive covenant figure... Abram, who will be called Abraham when he first met God. Um, last week, as I was preaching, I, I, I really. The reason we're talking about Abraham, the reason he's one of the special covenant figures that I picked is not only is he really the biggest one in the Old Testament, because God establishes a covenant with him that goes with Israel and, and really ties pretty much all of Israelite history together, starts with Abraham or Abram, whatever he's called. Um, but the other reason that I picked him is because when we look at the covenant, when we look at the new covenant, as well as the many old covenants that there were, um, what we see is this reality that um, it requires faith. Um, the covenant, as, as the opening video here shows us, the covenant what, it, what a covenant is, is it's defined by kind of a legal contract. It's a promise, it's a statement. It's like, you know, signing a marriage license. It's like signing a rental license or a house deed or a car deed. It's, it's, it's a contract that you're signing and there are legal ramifications for, for what it's going on here. This is what the covenant is. Generally, when you look at a covenant, there's two parts. One person gives you a car, the other person pays for the car. There's something that happens on both sides. In a marriage, in good marriages, there's people working on both sides. Both are committed to the, com- to the relationship in any covenant agreement, there's both sides working. Last week we looked at Abraham because he is the iconic figure of faith. When we looked at him and we we were trying to decide what does faith mean? What does it mean to have faith in God? What does this establish for us? I figured, you know, he's the best person to show us that and he's a covenant figure, so that's why we looked at him. When looking at faith, what we saw last week was this, and this sermon's really tying on. We're looking at the second half of Abraham's story. That's why I'm giving you a rehash of my old message. It's not because I didn't want to prepare a message this today. It's because I wanted you to follow along with me. So, so, so what we talked about last week, the example that I used was, um, was basically, if you can imagine yourself out on the highway, and, and you're picking something up, and you look up, and you see this Mack truck coming at you. And, and what's going to happen when you come face-to-face with this Mack truck? More than likely, your life will be radically changed. If he's going 60 miles an hour or even 50 miles an hour, if you're standing there staring at him coming, when the power of this truck, the force, the magnitude of this powerful force comes and it meets you, that contact will revolutionize your life. That contact will change you forever. And so when we look at Abraham, what we saw last week was he was a, a, just a guy doing his life, living his thing, and then he's walking around the road one day and God comes up and he meets God. He meets this Mack truck God, and what happened is when he met the Mack truck God, his life was literally forever changed. We're going to see not only is his life changed; I mean, he even has to change his name, I accidentally put that on repeat, I think, so if you can take that off repeat, that would be good. Um, although it was, I mean, it's fun to watch over and over again. Um, when he meets this Mack truck God, he didn't get plowed over and, 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 and you know, have to have to like live in a bed for the rest of his life but his life was changed he had to change his name he 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 basically came front to front with God and what often happens when we come front to front face to face with God is we see that he requires something of us he requires us to do something and what we talked about last week was that sometimes when you meet God it requires sacrifice sometimes when you come face to face with a Mack truck pain is involved You have to sacrifice something, and and you're going to go through hardships, you're going to have problems, you're going to have struggle, because the reality is, the power of God will change you. The power of God will force you to get out of your comfort zone and stretch you. What we also saw last week was that not only did God, when he asks us to go somewhere, And he told Abram, I want you to leave your land, I want you to leave your family. It required great sacrifice, but he also said, if you go, if you follow me, I will bless you. And then to close up my summarization moments here, what we saw was Abram was blessed. He was blessed incredibly. We have been blessed because of Abraham. We have experienced Christ because he was willing to go. We have experienced reading books because they were first written to write the Bible. I, I'm not going to go into my whole sermon, but the point is we have been blessed because of Abraham. The whole world was. So, with that as my starting point, we're going to continue this, this story today. Last week we saw Abraham pack up and leave. Today we see him go. I'm, I'm going to be very brief at the beginning because I want to obviously focus in on the covenant Story there, but before we can get there, I have to give you a brief summarization of what happens in Abraham's life. He leaves, he gets to Canaan where God tells him to go. He gets there, and and it's awesome because sometimes when you're following God, the absolute unexpected thing happens. God tells him, Go, because I'm going to bless you, and he gets there, and what happens? There's a famine in the land. Like, really, God? I mean, really? He said, you're going to bless me and I, I can't even eat. This is not blessing. Let me define the word for you, God. And this is what Abraham sees, is that, that it's, it's not the way he, he thinks that it will. So he goes down to Egypt. I'm not going to go into that story. But he discovers that really that was a bad move. He was supposed to be following God. And he was following his own intuition and goes to Egypt and does his own thing. And then he realizes he basically has to come back. And so he leaves Egypt and he comes back to Canaan once again. Once he comes back to Canaan for the second time, once he gets back on track, God's blessings begin to pour in onto his life. He really begins to see God shower him with earthly blessings. And again, I'm not saying when we follow God, we will always be showered with earthly blessings. Sometimes, as I said last week, when you follow God, you have to give up your earthly blessings. And so that doesn't equal this. Being a Christian does not mean you're going to forever be rich. Being a Christian means you're going to be forever following God. In Abraham's case, that meant he was blessed Financially, His livestock, which was the monetary system, they didn't have coins, dollar bills, credit cards, shocking on that one, but they had cows and sheep and goats. I'm sure that some of us can relate to that around here, that, that cattle equals money. And, and he had lots of lots of cattle. And God blessed him because his, his livestock was reproducing, growing greatly. He leaves the land of Ur, he leaves the land where he began, and as he gets here, his household grows exponentially as he begins settling into this land his household grows by huge numbers he he we find out the author of genesis tells us that, that, that at one point here he has 300 men in his household 300 men equals probably 300 women at least because back then they had more than one wife means if you have more than one wife you probably have lots of kids so you could have i mean almost a thousand people in his household we're talking almost the size of either Sublette or Sintanta in his household. He's got a big household. He's got a lot of servants helping him tend to his livestock. He's got a lot of wealth amassing up under him. As a matter of fact, he gets so wealthy that, that, that Lot, his nephew that had come with him, his household is also growing. They have to separate. They have to part ways because Abram, because the land cannot support this much cattle. The land cannot support this many servants in the household. They have to leave. In short, I could have just said God blessed him profoundly. And we need to grasp that. We need to get this. Um, But the thing is, and this happens to all of us, I think, from time to time, when God gives us blessings, when God, or first, let's back it up a little bit. When God tells us he wants us to do something, and he tells us, I have this plan for your life. I have this plan for where I want to take you. And then, and then he says, and this is what's going to happen along the way. We often become so focused on the ultimate goal, on the ultimate prize, that we lose sight of everything God is doing along the way. And I believe this is what happened to Abraham. He hears God say, I'm going to turn you into a nation, which, by the way, in ancient culture, if you had 300 men in your household, you could be considered a nation. But God has already done what he promised in ancient culture, but he's losing sight of that, and he says, God, why are you not giving me descendants? Why are you not giving me offspring? This is what he's focused on. And again and again in the Bible, we see Abraham keep coming back to this question. Let me remind you, he is our prime example of faith. He is the prime example of what faith means. And again and again in the Bible, he comes coming back to this question, God, why are you not fulfilling your promises? Why are you not doing what you said you would do? Why are you not giving me offspring? And yet God is blessing him profoundly. I have a short video I want you to watch. So um, I'm going to make you dance again. <laughs> um, if you can just watch this and, and kind of, you know, it'll tell you what to do. It's a test. This is an awareness test. And it's loud. How many passes does the team in white make? Go! The answer is 13. You got to get that right. Good job. But did you see the moonwalking bear? Go. The point is and you can turn the lights back on, sometimes we become so focused on one thing, we become so focused with our mind in one direction, that we are literally blind to what is happening right in front of us. We are literally blind to what God is possibly trying to show us, and it's right there, and we don't see it because we're focused on over here. We're focused on what we think is important over here. And, and, and this is something that it's actually a psychological concept. Um, it's called change blindness. And, and there's tons of videos. If you want to go to YouTube and have an open afternoon, there are tons of hilarious videos that will just show you how dumb people can be. And I'm not calling you dumb if you missed it. But all people <laughs> are dumb at time to time. And and, 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 and there's one that I wasn't going to tell you this, because it's, it's kind of off the point, but I'm OK with that right now. Um, there's one video where this guy is like asking for directions in England and, and he's talking to, to, this, to this person asking for directions. He's got this map out he's saying can you show me how to get this and then as he's talking this two people come carrying a video in between him and the person he's talking to and at first he changes himself out and, and he puts another person in and so the guy continues giving directions to a totally new person not realizing that's happened. He, he takes this and goes and sees how far he can get. He eventually gets to the point where he starts talking to the person And then later, when the change-out happens, a woman is talking to the person. And so he even changes gender, and people are so clueless sometimes. You don't even realize you were talking to a man, and now you're talking to a woman, and you don't realize anything happened. (laughs) People can be blind because we're focused upon what we think is important, what God has placed in our life, what is here, and that is, you know, we just have narrow minds sometimes. And we can all relate to this, but I think Abraham is a prime example of this right now. So the fact that he has doubt, and I'm going to say this over and over again, the fact that he has doubt, the fact that he has fear facing this, doesn't make him a bad person, it makes him a person. Because we all will face this. Again, when you see a Mack truck coming at you, you realize change is coming, you realize you're going to have to suffer, you realize things are going to hurt a little bit, it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to have doubt. It's okay to realize God is calling you to something greater. But at the same time, that's just humanity. That's the way it goes. Anyway, let's continue on with the story here a little bit. Um, Lot moved away. Abram, still here. Lot moved to the city of Sodom. You may have heard of it, fire and brimstone thing. We're not going there. We don't we need to worry about that. But Sodom is where Lot chooses to live. I love this next part because I'm a guy. And as a male, um, I really like you know beating things up, shooting things um, as a male, I like swords, I like fights. I grew up in Europe, and my favorite thing to do in Europe was to, um, to go to the castles and pretend and to sit on a cannon and to pretend to, sh- to shoot people and and you know, pretend to like, have a sword and, and do all that i 'm a boy, one hundred percent. this is what I am, this is what I was, this is what I will be, and I like shooting and I like fighting, and I love war scenes and what we're about to get here is an ancient world war described in the bible we're about to see this this incredible fight and i'm making it out to be much bigger than it was again because i'm a boy and and i like doing that but um it's this incredible world war world war scene where what happens is this king and i'm going to try to pronounce his name Mer. say that three times fast i dare you Um, this king uh, rules over five other nations sodom gomorrah Adma, Zebulim, and Bela, his kingdom rules over these five other kingdoms. He has been ruling over these five kingdoms for about 12 years. For 12 years he's got them under his suffrage or whatever you want to call it. They're paying taxes to him and all of this and basically what happens if we know anything about Sodom and Gomorrah They're not the type of people that are okay to following leadership, that are okay with that. And so these four kingdoms, and I'm not sure I'd blame them in this situation, these four kingdoms want independence from that one king. So they start up an uprising, they start up a rebellion, and what ends up happening, actually it's these five kingdoms that are rebels, the five kingdoms that are rebels decide to go to war against the one king. He goes out and gets four kingdoms to come alongside of him now we have four ruling kingdoms attacking five rebel kingdoms. You would think you would know who would win, but that's not what happens. In the Bible it describes this epic battle happening in, in the valley of the Dead Sea. Um, I, w- I don't know much about the terrain, I don't know actually where it is, but, but in the book of Genesis it describes this as, as very difficult terrain. It says that there's tar pits all over the place. And so the battle, the majority of the people that died in the battle actually did not die because it was, you know, five kingdoms versus four. It wasn't an equal battle. The reason the majority of the people died was because of these tar pits. I mean, can you imagine chasing after somebody, I'm gonna get you, and then you fall into a tar pit. That that, you're dead. And that would stink. So this epic battle takes place: five kings against four, and the four kings win. The ruler who was ruler defeats the other kingdoms. And what ends up happening in any ancient war story is the ruling nation will come and pillage, conquer, and take everything they can from the conquered nations. And that's exactly what happens. In all of this, Lot, Abram's nephew, gets taken captive by this evil kingdom. So, so Abram hears of this and he's not very cool with it. He's not very okay with his nephew whom he loves being you know, in prison. Not most of us would be. So he decides he's going to come to the rescue and save the day. Again, the Bible tells us he's got about 318 men in his household. And so he gets together with his 318 men. And he goes after and attacks the four kingdoms that just conquered five kingdoms. Get this. Four kingdoms. 318 men. Go attack four kingdoms that are obviously good warriors because they just killed five kingdoms. And guess what happens? God blesses Abram. God comes out once again, and he is the mighty warrior. He is the shield, the spear, the sword, the whatever you want to call it. He is this for Abram. And he gives Abram the power of the Mactra God, the power of this incredible force to go and wipe out four other really good fighting kingdoms. Abram disputes everything. 318 men wipe out all of the other people. Abram does his thing. He says hallelujah. He says thanks. He, he pays tithes. The whole Melchizedek story comes in. If you want to read it, it's in the Bible. It's a good story. Check it out. I'm not going into it today. Um, but after he thanks God, after he does all this, he comes back, and what happens with Abraham once again? Doubt enters his mind. It seems unfathomable to me. God is showing you his power again and again and again. You just miraculously defeated four kingdoms. And yet doubt enters his mind. He begins to question whether or not God is really powerful enough to do what God said he would do. He begins to question, can this really happen? My wife is barren, and she's now 70, 80, I don't know how old. She's getting pretty up there. She's not going to have a baby, God, you're crazy. Doubt enters his mind. Into this relationship, we see the character of our God. Into this problematic situation, we see the loving potential and and just beauty of our saving king that we serve. See, God didn't give him the covenant earlier because he didn't need the covenant earlier. It's in this situation when when Abram is saying, God, I don't really believe you can do this. The God comes in and says, not only can I do it, but I'm going to sign on the dotted line, and I'm going to prove to you that I will do what I said. I will sign the contract, and this will be legal. So, with this, we're going to start immediately with our text for the day, Genesis 15, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you. And your ward will be great. By the way, he's using like military language here when he says protect. He just got out of a battle and God's saying, I will be your sword and your shield. This is the the ramifications of the linguistic terminology he's saying when he says, I will protect you. But Abram replied, "O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Thanks God for doing all this, but it's pointless. Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all of my wealth. You've given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will have to end up being my heir. I'm not going to make a nation, God. I don't even have a son. I'm going to have to give it to a servant. Then the Lord said to him in verse 4, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look, look at the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Abram is a man of faith because he believed the Lord, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. This is such a powerful passage that the Apostle Paul later on in the New Testament will will quote this exact phrase again, saying that when we believe the Lord, he will count us as righteous because of our faith. This is a powerful passage and showing us why Abram is the example of faith is because he believed the Lord. It's not a question of whether or not he had doubt. It's not a question of whether or not he had fear. It's a question of whether or not he believed the Lord. It's it's a question of whether or not he was willing to trust out and go when God says to go, and to follow when God says to follow, to listen and to obey. He did have doubt, and, and again, it's natural, trusting God hurts, but um, what, what happens next is even though he's trusting God, even though he's believing in God, um, Abram continues to express his doubt. He continues to say, God, I got you, I believe you, I, I have faith in you, but how? How is this going to happen? How is this possible? I, 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 I know it's possible, but I don't see it, God, and I'm human, and I want you to tangibly write it out. Can you give me a 10-year plan for how this is going to work? And God doesn't have a 10-year plan for him. Well, he does, actually. And, and, uh, but not the way Abram wanted it, per se. What happens next, as I said before, is um, God's about to sign this covenant. God's about to give him the terms of the contract. God's about to lay it all out before him. This is what's going to happen. This is how it's going to happen. This is where it's going to happen. This is how you're going to be this, this, and this. And, and not only am I going to tell you, but I am going to give you Actually he, he he doesn't give him a ten year plan, he gives them like a five hundred year plan is what's about to happen, is he says, This is what will happen and, and he's about to, to do this. Now now when you think of covenants, when you think of signing the, the marriage contract, when you think of signing the car, I said there's some things that have to happen, right? You give the car, or they give the car, you give the money. What else has to happen? You have to sign on the the dotted line. For some contracts, for some covenants, there, there are certain ramath- or there are certain processes that need to be followed for this to happen. Sometimes you have to go get a notary public. You know, I mean, sometimes you got to go do that. Sometimes, if you really want to be legal, you even have to go get a lawyer to make sure you're doing it right. If you're getting married, you have to sometimes get a priest or somebody to help you along. Going, the there are certain things you have to do to sign these covenants. There are certain processes that have to be done. I mean, even if nothing else, even if it's a word-to-word one, you got to shake hands or something, right? There are cultural things that we do when we're signing a contract. What we see here, what God is about to do is sign a covenant, sign a contract, and there are cultural things that he's going to have to do in the process. This makes sense. Just remember, their culture is a long ways away from ours. They didn't have pen and paper. They didn't have notary publics or lawyers or, or anything else like that. They didn't even have money their livestock was their monetary system of values, three goats for a new car or whatever, and, and, and so, so this is the way it worked. So, um, what God tells him to do is to go out and take some animals, take some of your livestock, this is their monetary system, go take some of your animals, cut them in half. And what she's gonna do is he's gonna take one half the animal, put it over here, one half the animal, put it over here. So I'm picturing, and this is probably flawed, but I'm picturing Abraham out there with a chainsaw, attacking the cow, and, and, and you've got half the cow over here, and half the cow over here. God tells him to take one of, the, one of each sacrificial animal that there will be, so I'm picturing him with the chainsaw, get half a goat over here, half a goat over here, half a sheep over here, half a sheep over here. The birds are too small for the chainsaw, so it doesn't work. So God says, put just one dead sheep over there and one dead sheep over here. So he's got this path laid out with dead animals all the way across, half and half. It's bloody, it's gory, it's disgusting, but it's ancient, so it's not my fault. (laughs) That's the way it was. And this was a standard contract that kings would sign. When a king would come and make a promise to another king, when kingdoms are merging, or when a king is trying to make a promise to one of his people underneath him, this is the way that it was done to say, symbolically, As we walk through this together, as you come through and we walk through this path together, what I as the king am telling you, and what you as the king are telling me, is that my word is is real. It's going to happen. And if I should fail in this promise, if, if what I say will happen doesn't happen, you have a legal right to take your chainsaw and chop me in half. You have a legal right to destroy me, kill me, make me as one of these dead animals. This symbolically is representing them making the promise, and if the promise is broken, my name, my reputation, my life is in your hands. Everything I am, I will be dead if I break this contract with you. I'm glad we have pens and paper, I just wanted to put that out there, I'm glad that we have lawyers and notary publics, I mean I hate having to go find one, but I'm really glad I don't have to go chop up a cow to sign a contract. So, Abram follows. Again, he does what God tells him to do. In verse 12, as the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a terrifying darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. He's talking about the exile into Egypt. Um, But I will punish the nation, Egypt, ever heard of the ten plagues? that enslaves them, and in the end they will come away with great wealth. As for you, Abraham, or Abram, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land, for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. We're not going to get into the whole judgment of God thing right now, but what he just did is laid out the plan. This is the 400-year plan of what's going to happen. This is how you are going to take part of the great blessing that I have in store for the whole world. This is how you are taking part of everything. These are the terms of the contract. But what we see in this contract, I don't know if you paid attention to this, most contracts, there are two parts. One gives the car, one pays for the car. This one has one part. Only one. God says, I will do this for you. That's it. I will do this for you. See, see, he had already established in the prequel to the covenant, he had already told Abraham, what you need to do is go, leave your family, leave your friends, do all that. That's, that's, that's already done, and so at this point, God is simply saying, the covenant, the contract we are now establishing, you've done your part, this is my part to you. This is what will happen. This is extremely unusual in a king covenant contract, but it's exactly what happens. And what we see in verse 17 is just incredible, and I love it to death. Um, After the sun went down, and when the darkness fell, Abram sees a smoking firepot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. This is huge, people. Because what just happens is God, in the form of a fire, in the form of the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it, and the God takes shape into a fire, and he passes through. Through the dead carcasses he walks through so what is God telling Abraham what is God expressing to him I will fulfill my word and if I should not fulfill my word if I do not come through on this I am to you Abraham dead you have a legal right Abraham to chop me in half. You have a legal right, Abraham, to destroy my name, my integrity, everything that I am, Abraham. You have a legal right to absolutely destroy who I am if I don't come through. This will happen, Abraham, and I am telling you this, and I am putting my reputation and life on the line to let you know just how much I care for you. It's incredible to me that our God, who is more powerful than anything else on the entire universe, is so often willing to put his life on the line for us. He is so often willing to lay down his life for the sake of us. This is incredible to me. We serve such a wonderfully compassionate and loving God that he cares more about us than anything else. Abraham was a man of faith. He was a man who was trying to follow God, doing his best to hear God speak into his life on a daily basis. Um, sometimes he made mistakes. Sometimes his, he wasn't right. Sometimes his theology was wrong. Sometimes his thought processes weren't quite right. He had doubt. He had fear. He wrestled with these issues, but he was a man of faith. Because he was willing to follow God and trust God. And what we see is that God sees Abraham in his frail, broken, weak condition. And he takes him where he is and he says, I have great plans for you. I will take you in your frailty, in your fallacy, and I have great plans for you. I am above and can work through these problems. What I want to state today is that um, this is not a word of condemnation or a word trying to guilt trip you into action or anything like that. This, This message that I have today is a message of a loving God who has so much in store for each and every one of you. He's got things in store for this church, yes, but before that, he's got things for each and every one of you. He has plans for each and every one of you. But the problem is, Often, we are so focused on something else, we are so focused on what's not happening, on what's not going the way we want it to go, that we lose sight of God's plan, of God's grand vision. We lose sight of the moonwalking bear, because we're focused on something else. Last week I pointed out, and I'm probably going to point this out almost every sermon in this series, but um, we live under a new covenant. We live with a different type of relationship with God, and under this new relationship that we have with God, again, he gives us tons of freedom. He tells us you can do things differently. You don't have to sacrifice animals. But the one command that's there, clearly stated, the one commission is this, go make disciples. There's a lot of things we want in our lives. There's a lot of things we we allow to distract us. Retirement plans, family, friends, relationships, this, that. There's so much that we consume our lives with. The one thing that is clearly stated there beyond anything else is go make disciples. Last week I challenged you on that. How many of you have come back with a disciple? I haven't either so I'm not blaming you. (laughs) Well that's awesome. The point is on, on a daily basis we need to not only be actively pursuing helping people grow in their faith and when I say go make disciples I don't mean just go save people. I mean find somebody who needs help in their faith help them grow. I mean if they have no faith that's a starting point help them grow. If they have lots of faith help them grow. How are you doing in becoming a disciple? Are you growing? Do you need to grow more? Does God have more in store for your life than what you are currently living? Than what you are currently doing? I love the message that, that, that you gave last week from, from Nehemiah. God have a plan for every single one of us. He has a purpose for every single one of us. And our lives are not on accident. God knows why we're here and what we're supposed to be doing. Question is, continually, are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Or are you getting distracted by things in your life? Are you losing focus of the one thing that God is really crying out for us to do? The one covenantal contract that we really need to be subscribing to? Again, this is not a word of condemnation. This is a word of encouragement. Because I don't care where you are. I don't care how actively you've been pursuing it. The point of this message is that God is willing to loan you his name, his reputation. You are a Christian. That means you have Christ in your very name. You have his name on the line when you go outside. You are representing him every single day. He is willing to put it all on the line to give it to the frail, weak human being that you are. He's willing to go to great extents, even lay down his life, which he has done for you. What do we do for him? He is willing to help you every step of the way. He is willing to comfort you every step of the way. He is willing to give you a 400-year plan, if that's what it takes. But we need to be seeking after him. We need to make sure that we're not losing focus. What I see in this passage is that Abraham did lose focus. But how did he regain focus? It's simple. He talked to God. He opened up the lines of communication, and God begins to say, here I am. Listen to me. I'm here with you. All you have to do is seek me out. Ask me a difficult question, and I'm willing to give you an honest answer. This is the God we serve, a God of compassion, a God of grace. If you're not growing like you need to be growing, if you're not helping other people grow like they need to be growing, ask God an honest question. What do I need to be doing? How is this going to happen? How are you going to accomplish the will for my life that, that I know I should have, that I know I need to have? How do I fit into the grand picture, God? Show me. Lay it out for me. I want us to focus on this, and I I want you guys um, to, to really grasp that concept. I want you to dwell on that concept. I want you to take it home. I want you to write it on a plaque. I want you to continually ask yourself, what is God's plan for me today? What am I supposed to do today? What do you have for me today, God? How can I serve you today? How do I fit in this week, this month, this year? What am I supposed to be doing to serve you? If this is the guiding principle of our lives, then our lives will hopefully be in tune with him. But I don't want you to just do it by yourself. I want to be able to come alongside you guys and help you guys and and help us as a church pursue this calling of figuring out what God wants for us. Um, Easter's coming up. Easter, stereotypically, is the um, biggest visitation day for churches. So if you were ever going to invite somebody to come to a church, that would be a good day. I am going to ask you guys to think about it. I'm going to ask you a pointed question. If you knew that you had a God who loved you immensely, if you knew that you had a God who was all-powerful and stood behind you, if you knew you could not fail because you had a God of that magnitude, who would you invite to that service? If you knew that God would support you, who would you invite to that service? I'm gonna ask you that, and I'm not gonna make you answer it. I want you to dwell on it. I want you to focus upon it. Um, next week, I plan on, 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 on Wednesday night, I think, um, having just one specific, and this is during Holy Week, the week before Easter, I plan on having one prayer meeting where we will pray for Sunday morning of Easter. where where we will focus upon that. And if you know who you're going to invite, or if you know who somebody else is going to invite, I want us to gather together and pray for them individually. Pray for them. Commit to helping them. Commit to loving them. Commit to not just cramming the gospel down their throats, but cramming cookies down their throats, too. (laughs) Don't cram. That might not be good if they're diabetic or something. But, (laughs) but (laughs) Yes. I want you to, th- I mean, this passage could have multiple applications. That's one way I want to go, and, 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 and the week before Easter, I really want to focus on that and pray on that and think about that. That's what God's been stirring in my heart, at least immediately. Um, but I also, as I said before, want you to take this home and, and apply it on a daily basis. It won't do to just come and pray one time. You have to continually be seeking out God's face and doing that. Um, I'm not going to have this massive, awesome Indian right now. I'm just going to you know, pray that God will convict our hearts, that God will speak to us, and that he will help us to carve out a way, make time in our busy schedules to make sure we are continually not just praying for the things we want, we need, we like, but praying for the direction every day, praying for his direction every day, for how he can use us every day. That's what I want to ask. God, I, I come before you, and as I, as I close this service up, Lord God, I pray that your spirit will speak. Speak words that I can't say. Speak words that I didn't have time to say. Use the Bible. Use other believers. Use whatever it takes to imprint a passion for hearing you, a passion for following you, a passion for for knowing that we're walking in stuff with you every day of our life. Help us to see how our, our days fit into your plan for the week, for the month, for the year. Help us see how every activity in our day fits into your desire for us to reach other people, your desire for us to love other people. Give us grace. Give us strength. Help us conquer the things that need to be conquered and trust you for the things that we need your trust. Help us fight fear. Help us fight doubt. Help us refocus on you. I pray that you will bless us. I pray that you will keep us. And I do pray for Easter Sunday. Not that I think we can triple or quadruple this church in our our own sizes. And, And that's not even the point, God. I pray that every church in the city will have the ability to preach your word. Use us. If they won't come to our church, God, use us to take people to other churches, if that's what it takes. God, use us to spread your light, your word your glory. Help us represent your name well. Help us take the responsibility of you laying your life down on the line for us and treat that with the respect that it deserves. Give us grace. Give us your power. And in your holy name, Lord God, I pray that you will help us go. Help us go, serve, and do your work. In your holy name I pray. Amen. You guys are officially dismissed if you did not pick up on it.